Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord God, we thank you for um, the privilege of being your people, of having a loving church family. And we thank you for the privilege of hearing from your word, that as we read your word, you speak to us. And Lord, we pray that you will be speaking to us now by your spirit and that we will be ready to listen what you, to what you have to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've had a, a catastrophic summer of bushfires, haven't we? Um, it's been labelled the worst bushfire season on record. There's been over 10 million hectares burnt, an area about the size of England. Over 2,600 homes have been lost and destroyed just going up in flames. And um, 29 people have been killed, including three firefighters. I don't know if you've been watching all this unfold on TV, but it's been quite harrowing, quite devastating to see how extreme these fires have been. They've left a, a trail of destruction. Thousands of people hurting, homeless, suffering. Some, uh, sometimes you'll see whole, um, whole uh, communities decimated by the fire. Sometimes, like uh, house after house, um, burnt down. And then you'll get one that wasn't burnt down. And there's this chaos uh, that's unfolding. Some houses are burnt, others are spared. Uh, there seems to be, um, it raises a lot of questions of justice for us, doesn't it? What's happening here? Um, why does a firefighter die courageously fighting these fires to protect their community, while the arsonist who deliberately lit them walks away unaffected? It raises the bigger question of why is life so unfair? Why is the world so unfair? And here in Psalm 73, that's the burning question that the psalm writer is addressing. Now, you'll see in, these, in the superscription of the psalm, it says a psalm of Asaph. We normally say it Asaph in English, but in Hebrew it would be more Asaph. Um, but there's a lot of names. If you try to pronounce them in Hebrew, uh, it would be very difficult. So I'm just going to go with Asaph. Um, uh, and Asaph struggles with this question. He's grappling with this question. And as, um, uh, as Matt showed us in his... Uh, um, in his kind of thinking question he asked us earlier, he's really upset about this. Uh, he's passionate about this. And he asked, you know, what things are uh, really, um, you know, really upsetting to you? What things are really get you heated and, and worked up in, in movies or in stories? Well, Asaph is really getting upset when he looks at the nature of the world. He's asking these questions. Why is there so much suffering, evil and injustice in the world? Where is God in all this? If God is all-powerful and loving, how could this be happening? Why doesn't God do something? Why 
so unfair. This might be not something that we might be asking based on the bushfires. Maybe, maybe they didn't get us thinking. But there might be other things in our lives where we're really asking these questions. Maybe we've experienced an accident or been the victim of crime. Maybe uh, health problems or financial pressures. Maybe even suffering for doing good, um, being uh, persecuted or ostracised, being treated badly by others. There's a whole lot of ways that we might experiencing, experience injustice, unfairness in the world. So Asaph writes this psalm, and it's got two parts as he deals with this issue. The first part, verses 1 to 14, is really him venting and taking his anger to God. Uh, why is life so unfair? Asking these questions, describing what he sees. In the second part, verses 15 to 28, Asaph finds God's answer. So let's take a look at these two halves of the psalm and see what it means for us today. So first, Asaph starts out with an affirmation of God's goodness. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, and there's a but very early on there, isn't it? it but, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Imagine running up the steep hills of Israel, trying to escape an enemy. If your foot slips, you're gone. Asaph's saying he's in a very bad place. Why? He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph looks around and he sees injustice. Bad people have got it really good. And good people have got it bad. So he vents to God. Uh, he goes on a rant, basically. And the next uh, verses 4 to 12 are basically Asaph's rant to God. Uh, have you ever felt the need to go on a rant? Um, a rant is just defined by Oxford Dictionary as to speak or shout at length in an angry, impassioned way. I sometimes feel like I need to go on a rant. It's normally towards my kids about something that they're not listening or something like that. Um, but, you know, sometimes there are things uh, in the world that you see and that they make you just uh, really upset. This is so unfair. This is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. And that's what Asaph is ranting about. And being a song, uh, it's poetically written and carefully thought out and structured into three parts. Uh, the three parts uh, follow the typical chiastic or, or mirror structure. Um, they start with one point, they go into another point, and they come back to the first point. So uh, basically, his rant goes like this. These evil people, they have it so good. They have life so good. But they are so bad... Look, they have life so good. And so let's go through it. Um, he says, they have it so good. They have no struggles, these 
bad people that I'm seeing. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. These people, they seem almost above other humans, right? He's describing them as they don't seem to share the same sufferings everyone else experiences, but they're really bad, awful people. They seem almost godlike, unaffected by suffering. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves in violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin, evil, wrongdoing. Um, Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak. So here he starts going, going from from how they have it so good to they ha- they are so bad, right? Listing, listing out how bad they are. They scoff and speak with malice. Now he's, talk- he's gone from the, the matters of the heart to their, their speech. They speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. They use their words to try and abuse and manipulate and control other people, threatening them. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, They're boastful, they're bragging, and their tongues take possession of the earth. They seem to be successful in this act of controlling people by their speech. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Now, the Hebrew for this phrase is a little bit uh, tricky, but what it seems to be saying is that They've got this ready supply of followers. Everyone wants to hear what they have to say and and just drink up what they're saying. Whatever poisonous lies they're saying, people go, yes, yes, give us more and just keep drinking up whatever uh, poison they're pouring out. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? You don't have to go far to find people who self-righteously mock God, who feel completely assured about doing so, who hold God or the very idea of God in utter contempt. And Asaph says, these people have got it so good. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care, They go on amassing wealth. These people are hugely successful. They're popular. Everything's going well for them. That's the picture of uh, godless people that Asaph paints, that he sees in the world around him. So that's Asaph's rant. I'm sure that we can relate to this, right? As we look at the world around us, we see the world is a very messed up place. While the world likes to believe in things like karma, good people get good things happening to them and bad people get bad things happening to them, when we look at the world around us, that doesn't stack up. We see good people getting bad things happening to them and bad people getting good things happening to them. Asaph is saying, God, where is the justice in this world? This is wrong. And as we look at the world around us, I guess even more than Asaph, we have 
constant streams of media constantly showing us how wrong the world is, how messed up everything is. If you watch the news, you cannot think that the world is a just and good and happy place, can you? Imagine uh, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World set to a news broadcast. I see trees of green and you have pictures of devastated landscapes from bushfires. Red roses too. And you see pictures of people mourning those massacred by Boko Haram in Nigeria. I see them bloom for me and you. And you see the mass of plastics in the ocean that are destroying our planet. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And you see the sheer numbers of modern day slavery and people forced into labor, human trafficking. And you think, God, why? Why is the world so unfair? So that's the first half of Asaph's psalm. He brings the injustice and his passion for justice to God and his anguished cries of, why God, why? And he goes the next step. You know, fill this space with whatever injustice you're thinking of. And, and, and Asaph, Asaph then goes to the next step. He, he says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. This is the climax of, of Asaph's grappling with this issue of, of, of pouring out his feelings of injustice to God. He says, God, you know what? I've been trying my best, but what have I got for it? Suffering and punishment. I'm not like those people. God, why? And like Asaph, we can become jealous of the arrogant and those who have no moral convictions, they, they don't seem to care about right and wrong, and they can have it, life can seem so easy. They do whatever they want, and everything seems to go well for them. Asaph has come to a very dark place. He's doubting the very core of his faith. He's doubting the very goodness and justice of God. Is there even a God who cares. Where is God in all this? What's the point of doing right if it just brings suffering and affliction? He's honest about his feelings and taking them to God. And then we get to the second half of his, of his song. And he doesn't leave us in that dark night of the soul for very long. He says this, If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Deep down, Asaph knows his feelings are not right. 
He can't trust his feelings at this time. But he's confused. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. This is the turning point for Asaph. And what is the turning point? He enters the sanctuary of God and understands their final destiny. There's two things which make all the difference. There's two things here. Firstly, he says, I understood their final destiny. Asaph realises that while life is full of injustice and evil, and we seldom see God's justice carried out in the present, God's justice will come. He goes on, verse 18 and 19, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Asaph says, These people who seem like gods, when the real God comes, they're going to be put in their place. Their evil imaginations seem to have no limit in verse 7, but now they are like a mere fantasy. They seemed like gods, but now they come to nothing. Asaph gets a bigger perspective. Instead of looking for God's justice now and always um, like God step in and strike these people with lightning, um, do something, he gets it in perspective that we live in this time of between God's good creation and fall, where sin enters the world, and God's work of redemption, of bringing back this world from suffering, evil and sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve in the garden. And God is working through history to bring back and restore his creation. And we live this side of the final judgment. He hasn't come yet, but God will bring about a final judgment. God will bring a new creation where there's no more evil, sickness, suffering, injustice and death. So Asaph sees God is still a just judge. It won't be complete until the final judgment and the new creation. And until then, we live in this world of suffering. God is still a just judge. You know, we know how human law courts um, can't provide ultimate justice, right? When someone murders, they can't bring back the life of of the person who's been murdered. Um, no matter what, it, what the situation, our law courts can't bring that perfect justice that we need. But what would we want God to do if he was to enact justice now? You know, strike that um, murderer with lightning straight away. Okay, you murdered someone. Well, that doesn't bring the person back, does it? Or maybe even better, strike them with lightning just before they murder the person because God knows they're going to, right? Preemptive capital punishment. <laughs> 
but then they actually haven't done the wrong thing yet, right? And it's going to look very bad. It's going to look like God is killing the innocent. Um, you can see if you start getting into ideas of God, start implementing your justice here and now, it gets very complicated. God would have to suspend the normal laws of physics and the way the world works. And Asaph comes to realize he can trust God's justice, that God is going to work out his perfect justice in time. Also, he seems to realize um, that uh, there's actually a purpose for the suffering that we see. You know, in fact, if God was to step in in human history now and take away all suffering and all injustice, then he would be doing us a great disservice. You go, wait, what are you saying here? That doesn't make any sense. Um, Dr. Paul Brand uh, worked with lepers in India and he wrote a book called The Gift of Pain. Lepers lose feeling in their, in their extremities, in their limbs, and they don't have pain. And so their, their limbs get badly damaged. They get eaten by rats. Um, they, they can't feel any pain. They put their hand on the hot plate in the fire. They can't feel any pain. So they're destroying themselves uh, because pain is a necessary thing that tells us this is dangerous take your hand away. And the pain that we experience in the world is there for a reason. Because the world is in a dangerous state, cut off from God. And there are terrible consequences to being cut off from God. And that pain is there to show us the nature of reality that we live in a fallen, broken world and we need God. That pain is an important warning sign, a message that we all need to hear. So to take away suffering and pain would be to take away the warning sign we all need to hear. C.S. Lewis put it this way, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The second thing, uh, after Asaph is encouraged that God will bring justice and that, that there's a, a reason, a good reason that we have to trust God, a good reason for not taking these things out of the world right now, the second thing he finds is something deeper. Something not just on an intellectual level, but something that's deeply personal that changes him. And it's a real relationship with God. He experiences being with God. And that changes everything. Sorry, pain is God's megaphone. Um, this is like the story of Job. And before getting to where Asaph describes his experience, I want to just quickly diverge to the story of Job. Job was this wealthy, uh, righteous man. The, the, the Bible describes him as righteous. It doesn't mean he was perfect, um, but it means he was living God's way. He was careful to do what was right by God's law and follow God's 
God's way. And he even offered sacrifice for his children just in case they did anything wrong in in that um, uh, ancient times. He was so careful to do what was right by God and so good. And one day God pointed Job out uh, to Satan and Satan says, God, Job only loves you because of everything you give him. Look, you give him, he's so wealthy and rich. Take it all away and he will curse you to your face. And so God says to Satan, well, you can take it all away. Just don't hurt Job. And so all Satan um, takes away all of Job's family. All uh, his children are wiped out. All of his livestock and herds are wiped out. All of his houses are gone, everything, and Job has nothing. And he... He doesn't curse God. He says, naked I come, came into the world and naked I'll depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And um, Satan comes back to God and God says, oh, look at my servant Job. And Satan goes, ah, wait a minute, but you haven't let me hurt him. You let me hurt him and then he'll curse you to, his, to your face. And so God says, very well, you can do what you like to him, but you're not allowed to kill him. So Satan goes and inflicts Job with all of this suffering, boils all over his body. I don't know if you've had boils. When I was a kid growing up on Palm Island, we got lots of infections from the dust. These boils, they would swell up, they'd hurt. You have to cut them open. Oh, pus, lots of pus coming out. It was horrible. Job had them all over his body. He was suffering so much. And the best his friends could do were come and tell him, Job, you must have done something really, really bad. You've been so bad. God is punishing you. They had that karma mentality, right, that we all naturally have. Oh, I must have done something really, really bad for this to be happening. God must be punishing me. Job starts to get this indignation uh, he he argues with his friends and most of the book of Job is him arguing with his friends going they're going you've done something so wrong he's going no no this is not about that I'm sure it's not not being punished by God in this they're going yes yes it is in the end God shows up and he vindicates Job he tells uh, his friends that they've spoken the wrong thing it's not uh, that Job had done something wrong now Job never gets to hear the backstory of why he was suffering, interestingly. He never gets that intellectual level of explaining how the, God's justice works. But God shows up and he gives Job a grand tour of his ordering of the creation. God shows up and he, he, he speaks about his working in, in the whole cosmos, in, in all of the, the world, living creatures of the world, how he oversees this mysterious grand design and his sovereign rule over the universe with all its awe-inspiring grandeur and all its tragedy. And God teaches Job a lesson in wisdom the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the thing that really touches Job's heart and meets his need is that God shows up for him. That God is there for him and he meets God. And God uh, blesses him more than he was blessed before. 
And he sees that God isn't this um, enemy that Job thought he was, who was attacking him and, and, and who was doing injustice to him, and that his friends were saying he was. Um, God is actually sovereign and just, and he can trust God through whatever he's going through. And that makes all the difference for Job. In Psalm 73, for Asaph, it's the same. He says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He, he came to God. Remember, he had that experience of God being in God's presence, in God's sanctuary. And that was what changed everything. And so... Because of that experience of coming to God's sanctuary, he says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, I think he means after this life, you will take me into glory. It's a beautiful statement of confidence, having come to God's sanctuary, having experienced God's presence, having come to know God, he has this confidence and assurance now that God is with him. And that changes everything. And so he says, Who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. Even if I lose my home, it no longer matters. Even if I've got nothing left, I don't care. Because I've got my ultimate need. I know my God and my God is looking after me. He says, my flesh, my heart may fail. And let's face it, one day our flesh, our heart will fail. Each one of us will breathe our last breath. But Asaph says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, remember he started, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Now he finishes, but as for me, it's good to be near God. How he has changed by experiencing coming to God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds.